Today we're going to look briefly at a conflict over Jesus' authority. The authority of Jesus, which is an interesting thing for a Christian who happens to be an American. Because sort of that secondary identity of an American means we've been shaped in a system largely that communicates something like this. We will have no authority. <laughs> or we are our own authority. And that makes sense, right, to reject authority sometimes because often authority is abused. In the uh, seal of the Commonwealth of Virginia, the early, one of the early seals, 1776, and it's still in, uh, on the Virginia state flag and in a lot of official documents, it's a picture of, there's a few versions of it, but gen- usually it's a picture of Lady Virtue with a spear, and her foot is on the chest of a dead soldier. Sometimes it's the dead king of England. And underneath the seal it says, Sic Semper Tyrannis, which in Latin is Latin for, thus always to tyrants, dead on the ground. So one historian said, this, Virginia was communicating this, even our virtuous women will slay your tyrant men. Right? And... Um, Thus always to tyrants. Everybody will slay them. We will have no king over us. That makes sense because sometimes authority is tyranny. But what if it's not? What if authority is a good authority and not a tyrannical authority? That's what we're looking at this morning. A couple weeks ago, Taylor preached on Matthew 11, this well-known passage perhaps where Jesus says these words. I put this in your insert above the On the right side, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, all who are labored and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A yoke is an authority. If you remember, a yoke is a wooden harness that, 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 fastens two animals together. It's made out of wood. It doesn't bend to you. You bend to it. It, it, it forces you, and Jesus is saying here, you, you take my authority on you. You are fastened to me, and you, you mold yourself to it. And what you will find is it will bring rest to your souls because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I'm going to suggest that's because We find the authority of Jesus, which is stronger than us, which we have to conform ourselves to, is rest to our souls because we've been made for it. We've actually been created for this. As being made in the image of God, we are created to be under the authority of Jesus. I would liken it to if you've ever had a, wore a a posture brace on your back. If you you hunch over, if you sit like a lot of Americans do, you know, 20 hours a week, 30, 40 hours a week, your posture can get like shriveled up. And you put a back brace on, a posture brace on, and it pulls your spine and your shoulders into alignment. Initially, you're like, oh, this is kind of painful. But it's what you're made for. Biomechanically, that's how you're designed to stand, your shoulders and your, your, your spine and that sort of alignment. And after a while, you put that on, you're like, oh, this, I don't really feel this at all. Why? Because it's done its job. It's formed you. It's, it's moved you back into this posture, your created original design. The authority of Jesus brings us back into our original design. And so, therefore, the main idea of what we're getting at this morning is glad submission to the authority of Jesus 
is what I'm going to call the way of life in the new world, the world God is building by his spirit, the world we taste of now but that's coming full. And glad submission to the authority of Jesus is the way of, of living in this new world. So I want to look just briefly here this morning at three things from this passage, the humility of Jesus' authority, the goodness of Jesus' authority, and the warning of Jesus' authority. Right? Humility, goodness, and warning. First of all, the humility of Jesus' authority. Verse 1, chapter 20. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John, John the Baptist, from heaven or from man? And the leaders discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Well, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So the leaders answered Jesus that they did not know where it came from. Verse 8, Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And by the humility of Jesus' authority, I mean the quietness of it. He doesn't have to shout it. He doesn't have to demand it. He doesn't have to demand that we respond to it immediately. We have in our family, two, two members of our close family have gone into two different branches of military service in the last few months, and so they've had the joys of basic training, which I've never had the privilege. Some of you perhaps have had the privilege of basic training. I have never had that in the military. But my sense of it is that, that uh, training officers in basic training are not caught, uh, necessarily cut from the kinder, gentler, softer cloth, typically. Uh, and there's a lot of demands that are made. There's a lot of commands that are made, and appropriately so. There is a lot of volume that's used and a lot of clarity that's done, and you, you know for sure that they have authority. It's my hunch, however, that a general does not walk around his office talking to his staff in the same way, commanding, being loud, getting in their face. And if you go up, like the Joint Chiefs of Staff or even the President of the United States, generally, I assume, Worked better before a few years ago. The commander-in-chief probably did not go around, does not go around making loud demands of people. He or she, whatever the case may be, would simply say something and it would be done. In fact, the president could write something on a post-it note and it could affect the entire world. Why is this? The more actual authority someone has, generally, the less they need to demand that people respond to it because they just have authority. The higher you go, you really go up the authority chain in whatever organization you are, the, the quieter you can use your voice in carrying out that authority because you simply have authority. Just before this event, Jesus, what has happened, and we skipped over a little bit because we covered this passage a few weeks ago uh, in the, just before Easter, Jesus has come into the city to shouts of Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from Psalm 118. And he goes into the city and he goes into the temple and he sees money changers there selling in the temple, uh, basically price gouging people who are trying to buy worship supplies. And he turns over the tables and he runs them out of the temple. Actually, now who gets to do that, right? That's what they want to know. And then he's teaching in the temple and these crowds are coming to him and some of the sort of the credentialed leaders come to Jesus. 
And they say, what authority do you have to do this? Tell us, by what authority are you doing this? Now, catch the scene. Jesus is teaching, and a lot of uh, just common folk are sitting there. They're listening to him. They know he has authority. They're happy to receive it. The leaders, the people who are supposed to know what's going on, are somehow upset by this. They break in probably from the back and interrupt and make a demand in the form of a question. Tell us, what authority do you have to do this? Who gives you this authority? And so Jesus, the ever-wise Jesus, instead of answering them, <laughs> he asked them a question. He's like, hey, tell me about John the Baptist. Real prophet, false prophet? Just curious. Now, why does he do this? Remember, the people love John the Baptist, and the leaders confer among themselves. Hey, guys, if we say John the Baptist is a real prophet, Jesus can say, why don't you just listen to him because John the Baptist affirmed Jesus. But if we say he was a false prophet, we're not sure what the people will do, will do to us because they really love John the Baptist. So they say, Jesus, we're not going to answer you. And Jesus says, same. I'm not responding. I don't have to answer to you. It would be like if Roger Williams somehow could gain access to the General Mark Milley, who's the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman, into his office and say, General, by what authority did you do that last action in Afghanistan? He would say, how did you get in here? I don't answer to you. Out. Of course, I would never even be able to get in. Uh, Jesus does not answer to them. He does not have to answer to them. And furthermore, what would he say? What would he say? I did a wedding a couple weeks ago. Got to do a wedding for uh, Luke Spencer and Allison Reed, who were here in the first service. And by the end of the service, I, you know, you can say this. I never say this. By the power vested in me, by the state of Indiana, I declare, pronounce that you are husband and wife. That would be saying, like the state of Indiana, which is bigger than me, that is outside of me, gives me permission to do something. I don't just in my own. I just can't declare married, 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 married. That makes no no difference if I say that just on my own. But as a recognized religious leader, uh, the state of Indiana then vests, gives permission for me in a certain context to do that. So when you're demanding somebody, uh, authority from someone, you're saying, who bigger than you, stronger than you, outside of you, is giving you permission to do this, what's Jesus going to say? There is nobody to get, Jesus has authority in and of himself. Theologians would say it's self-referential authority, it's self-evident authority. He has it. There's no one to give authority to Jesus on this earth because he is the authority. Now this right here, that the authority that rests in Jesus is a focal point, a watershed in the universe. There are two types of people. Those who see Jesus as an authority in himself to which we must submit or those who make a demand of Jesus in some way. If you show me this, then I will believe. If you do this, then I will believe. That is actually taking a position of authority over Jesus. It's exactly what these guys were doing. Who gives you authority to do this? If you can prove it to me, I'll, I'll follow you. The reason Jesus doesn't answer is because there's nothing to say. He is his own authority. Is he the only one like this? Yes, he is. There's nobody else like Jesus, right? This is how it works. And that's why the early, we did a, a Christian creed in our, in our statement of faith, the Apostles' Creed. Taylor mentioned it developed, you know, in conjunction a couple hundred years after the Apostles. The first Christian creed was this. 
Jesus is Lord. That's it. Jesus is Lord. It means master. In that particular uh, context, it especially meant Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. It was politically explosive for them to say this. Jesus is master. He's the absolute king. So we tend to say things like today, like, have you received Jesus as Savior? That's a fine question. An earlier question, maybe a more biblical question is, do you follow Jesus as Lord? Does he have real functional authority in our life? This means to miss the authority of Jesus is to miss Jesus. So we can't say, there's no, there's no room. There's, it, it's completely nonsensical to say, yes, I believe in Jesus. No, I don't follow him as Lord. That just means you don't know, you don't know Jesus. He is authority in himself. That means to receive his authority in an ongoing way is to know him and love him for who he really and actually is. So there, therefore, submission to Jesus' authority is the way of life in God's kingdom because it's recognizing Jesus for who he really is and us for who we really are. But Jesus doesn't shout it. He didn't shout it then. And we often say, you know, this is um, Ascension Sunday. This is the Sunday that we celebrate the reality that Jesus has ascended and taken his rightful place at the right hand of God, the executive center of power in the universe. And we often say the person of Jesus in the Gospels is the same person of Jesus who is today. He did not shout his authority today, then. He does not shout his authority now. He's just as authoritative. He just invites, just like he's doing to these folks here. Some see his authority, some don't but he invites us to see it. Part of the reason we do our confession of sin uh, corporately is because it gives everybody, it's one way we know for sure, that everybody has an opportunity to bring themselves back into that natural biomechanical alignment of the soul with Jesus on a weekly basis. It's just submitting to Jesus' authority. And so it might be helpful uh, just as a way of application to Think about, are there areas of life where we're functionally not submitting to Jesus' authority? Our hope, constant worry about the future, what is that called? Cynics, like myself, call it realism, right? Oh, I'm just being realistic. It's really just not submitting to the authority of Jesus and the fact that he's a sovereign king and we have every reason to be hopeful in the future. Our speech, critical Maybe we're, we don't have a lot of gratitude. We're not very thankful. Uh, I know that in my own life, when Jesus seems distant and I can think of it clearly, sometimes I need friends to help me. If Jesus experientially is distant to me, a helpful question is, Roger, where are you unwilling right now to submit to the authority of Jesus in your life? Right? Would, do you want that? Or would you rather just kind of hold on to your self-pity right here? Because it's such a nice companion. Or maybe your anxiety, maybe our fear, maybe our, our criticism. Sometimes we just like to hold on to those things. Maybe our honor. How dare I be dishonored? I know that sometimes I don't, I don't sleep well sometimes and wake up in the middle of the night, go to sleep pretty easy, but wake up in the middle of the night. And it's always interesting how in the middle of the night, for some of us, you can think so clearly about how, how things definitely will go in the future. And they're always bad, you know, and it keeps you up. And sometimes if I can have the wherewithal, I get out of bed, just get on my knees, usually in the living room, and say, Lord, I am not, 
I, I don't know how, but I, right now I'm unwilling to submit to your, your sovereignty. Help me see how it is. Now, I wish I did that all the time. I would sleep much better. Um, but there's a reality that fear, anxiety, worry is part of that is not submitting to who Jesus really is in his full authority. I'm not saying this is an easy thing by any stretch, but um, that's the, uh, the humility of Jesus' authority. He invites us to see it. But there's a deep goodness to it. The intention of Jesus' authority is to bring us fullness of life. So instead of giving them what they want, an answer, he gives them a parable. Verse 9, and Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let out to the tenants and went into another country for a long while. I'm not, I did not see until just this moment that he told that to the people. The leaders came to him. Oh, this is so good. I can't believe I missed this in my study. I'm exegeting as I go here. This is always dangerous. But... Um, the leaders come and make a demand of him, and he talks to the people. He tells a story about the leaders. This is so good. So he, uh, a man planted a vineyard. Who is that? That's the, the God figure in the parables, the vineyard owner. In Isaiah 5, Israel is supposed to be this vineyard that's fruitful, and it's, uh, the, the leaders who are right there are supposed to, in partnership with God, help cultivate this vineyard. So he's talking about the leaders to the people where the leaders are standing right there. That is so cool. Um, they were supposed to function in partnership to cultivate the vineyard. Verse 10, when the time came, he, the owner, sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some fruit uh, of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him, the servant, and sent him away empty-handed. So the owner in the parable is God. He sends a messenger to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard. Why? It's his vineyard. Hey, bring me back some fruit. Instead of giving the, the fruit, the tenants, the leaders... Uh, beat the messenger, beat the servant. Now you can do a couple, a little bit of nerded out study and realize this is the same language used around how the leaders treated Jeremiah the prophet. God sent Jeremiah to them, they beat him, they put him in a well, they left him, similar language. So this is a picture of the leaders of Israel ignoring the prophets God sent to call them back to their shepherding task of cultivating fruit of the vineyard. Now, now the vineyard picture is like this. It's this garden that's blessed that was eventually supposed to bless the entire earth. Like it's goodness. It's just falling off the, the vine goodness and shalom and wholeness. Verse 11, and, God, and he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. So numerous prophets, right? This is the history of the Old Testament. God sends a prophet, the leaders ignore him. God sends a prophet, the leaders beat him. God sends a prophet, the leaders ignore him. Including John the Baptist, by the way, who they just talked about. So what does the landowner then do in the parable? Verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. At this point, your radar should be up. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What's this talking about? Several prophets come and they're ignored. And then a son comes and he's killed. 
This is talking about Jesus. It hasn't happened yet. That happens at the end of this week that he's in right now. So this will land on his hearers in a significant way in about seven days, six days, five days. Now, why did they think if they killed the heir, they would get the vineyard? Truth is, we don't know. It's kind of, it's an open question. It could be that they thought that the owner was never coming back. It could be the owner was dead, and this is the heir coming to collect things. And if they kill the heir, then it's an ownerless property, and maybe we have an opportunity. Of course, they end up losing everything. What will then, verse 15, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. That happened right within a generation. Rome descends on Israel, descends on Jerusalem, lays waste to the city, lays waste to the temple, and it's done forever. This is a sign, of course, of the the gospel going beyond Israel to the nations, to the Gentiles. That's what Taylor talked about with our baptism. And we are all thankful for that, almost all of us, right? Most of us are Gentile by background, and we are thankful that that gospel has gone out, that 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 vineyard has expanded, that picture has gotten bigger and included us. It's what Jesus talks about in John 10, what we saw it a couple weeks ago, when he says, I have other sheep that I'm going to go get and bring in and have one, one shepherd and one flock. Verse 16, when they heard this, they said, surely not. They get what he was saying. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's also from Psalm 118, which was quoted just the day before as he rode into the city. You cast off this stone, you builders. You were supposed to know what you were doing. You were supposed to recognize good stones, and you took this stone and threw it to the side, and look what it's become. It's become the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the building, the first stone that was set, with which the other stones were aligned perfectly to give strength to the building. It was the beginning of the building, the beginning of what building? In this context, it's the new temple. Remember what kicked this off. Jesus goes into the temple. He turns over the the tables in the temple, and the authorities demand an accounting of him. Why, what authority are you doing this? And Jesus implicitly says, my own, I'm the new temple. I'm the cornerstone. You rejected me. I'm the new cornerstone. And by virtue of it, by extension, those who are connected to him by union and faith, you become this new temple as well. That's why 1 Peter 2 says, you are like living stones being built together. Remember what the temple was for the Jewish people. In their mind, we've talked about this a few times in the past, it was the place where God touched earth. That was the center of worship in the Old Testament, where the temple was where God touched earth. And they believed when the kingdom of God came, it was from that place where God touches earth, where the kingdom will extend to the the ends of the earth. And the temple was carved like the Garden of Eden, because their vision of the temple extending was bringing health and wholeness and life to all things with this eventual vision of all things renewed in this garden city that covers the earth. Jesus says, I'm the new temple. The, The extension is, those connected to me become the new temple. And this life covers the earth, this life that we taste now. It comes full as we are aligned with Jesus, as we submit to his authority, becoming aligned with this cornerstone. Uh, the wild thing here to me is that this, these leaders thought they could get the vineyard by killing the son. 
They thought they could get the vineyard by exercising their authority over the son. They took and demanded and grabbed. They knew best. They would exert their power. If we can just do this, we will get the vineyard. (laughs) If they would have simply received the son, they would have seen he came to give them the vineyard. Here's Here's the gospel, guys. If we get the son, we get everything. We get everything possible, conceivable. What in Christ, what do you not have that you need to have? We get everything if we get the son. And the more astounding than getting everything is we get the son. We get to become sons. We get to become daughters. We get to become actual part of the family of God. His inheritance is our inheritance because we get adopted into the family. All they had to do was not exercise their authority over, but exercise authority under, and they were unwilling to do it. But that is the way of life in the kingdom of God. That is the way of life in the new world that Jesus is building. Submitting and seeing what the one in authority has to say. It's a good authority. Finally here, there is a warning attached with this. Verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone, right, the stone that was rejected, Now has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. We're not going to go into the depths of what all that means or the way it's threaded throughout the Bible, but if you want to look at Isaiah 8, you'll see it. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul picks this up and makes it an individual application that it's easy to stumble over the stumbling stone of the cross of Christ. In Daniel 2, there's this vision of this uh, this is actually language pulled from Daniel 2 of this vision of the nations. The nations are a huge statue. It's a weird vision, as all of Daniel is, really. And the stone is hewn out of a mountain, and it comes rolling down, and it cr- hits the feet of the statue, and it crushes it. It blows it to smithereens, the nations. What is this saying? The authority of Jesus is absolute, resolute, unchanging. There's a, there's a Jewish phrase from about this time that some scholars think that that was being drawn on here that says something like this. Whether the pot falls on a stone or a stone falls on the pot, there the pot lies broken. Right? Why? Because the stone's harder than the pot. You drop a, you drop a, a, a ceramic coffee cup on a rock, it's going to break. You drop a rock on a ceramic coffee cup, it's going to break. Why? The rock is harder. The authority of Jesus is harder. All he's saying here is that the old world is passing away. The old world is passing away. The new world has become, has come, and it will come in full. To resist the authority of Jesus, to reject the authority of Jesus, is to have our feet firmly planted in the world that is passing away. The world where we exercise our authority over things. And that will eventually break break us. But it does not have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. At the end of the day, I think we are often unwilling to submit to the authority of Jesus because we're afraid if we do, he will be unkind to us. We're a little bit scared. I'm not sure he's that good to us. I'm not sure he's really committed to my good. And if I really were committed to, to being submissive to him, he would do the worst possible thing for me and say, you should like it. Right? I, I think we all have thought that. We often hear stories of politicians or powerful business leaders or pastors 
or parents who, when they have functionally unchecked authority, when they have no authority higher than them, do terrible things. Some of you have experienced that. We all see stories about this nearly every week, whether it's a pastor or some business leader or some politician or whatever. It's a heady thing. It's a hard thing for, hu- for human people to have authority. It really is. And I think we can tell a lot from someone when they, have, when they really are at the top of an organization and have a lot of authority. How do they act? How do they use that authority for themselves or for their people? Do they serve themselves or do they serve their people? Jesus Christ has no authority greater than him. None. He shares authority with the Father and Spirit alone. There is no authority equal to him, greater than him. Nothing. He answers to no one. He's obligated to no one. What does a person do with that kind of authority? I'm going to close by reading from John 10. Before we go to the communion table, I already referenced this earlier, but just hear these words. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, verse 14. I know my own and my own know me. Some know that he has authority. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. That's talking about y'all. Right? You see Jesus' authority. You love Jesus' authority. This is you right here in this text. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus, unchecked authority. No equal authority anywhere ever in history, ever will be, ever could be. Absolute authority. Answers to no one. With all that authority, what does he do? He serves you and he serves me by laying down his life. How will he not also, in any other realm of authority, do us good? It is good authority. He is for us because when he had ultimate authority, he served us to the ultimate. That's what communion celebrates. Communion is a living testimony to the reality that Jesus' authority is humble. He invites us to see, but it is thoroughly deeply and resolutely good. He's for us. He's for us. And if you're in Christ Jesus, I invite you to come to the table with us here in just a second. We've shifted the way we do communion a little bit. We're going to uh, pass it out to you. We will invite, invite you to take the, the bread and the cup and then hold it, and then we'll all take it together at the end. We're not going to come forward like we have in the past. We don't have, if you still want the, like the little chintzy things, we'll have a couple of those on the trays. You can grab those. If you like the taste of styrofoam instead of bread. But we're going to pass that out. Um, we, you need to know there's red wine and white grape juice. Red wine, white grape juice. If you're not going to take, that's fine. Just, just, just give us a little hand. That's fine. It's not uncommon for people not to take communion in the New City community. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is not yet for you. That's okay. You're still thinking and and, and working that thing out? That's great. Just don't take communion. If you are in unresolved conflict with another person in the body of Christ and have not attempted to resolve the conflict, Scripture would say, first go make a temptation. Go attempt to be reconciled and then come back to the table. Likewise, if you are actively unrepentantly denying the authority of Jesus but claiming to be a follower of Jesus, Scripture would warn you, don't take. You'll be deadening your conscience and bringing judgment upon yourself. But 
If you're struggling with the authority of Jesus, you want to live under it, but you struggle, join the crowd. This is for you. This is to strengthen us in this. I'm going to pray and ask those who are serving or who are willing to serve. Elders here, deacons, help me. We'll pass this out, and then we'll come, all come to the table together. Jesus, thank you for your authority. I, help us to not have the small vision of you that thinks that if we would really delight in submitting to your authority, you would lead us down a harsh path. How foolish that is when we see it, you and your unfettered authority, you gave your life for us. We repent of that. Ask you to strengthen us through this table now in Jesus' name. Amen.